0: When you wish upon a star Make no difference who with...
1: Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. I don't know if I mentioned this on the podcast. I might have mentioned it around Christmas time, that I was watching a lot of Christmas specials this past holiday season, and I watched this one that was broadcast from Disneyland in, I think, the early 60s. It was hosted by Walt himself, you know, doing the full shtick, you know, doing the full, oh, I'm, uh, I'm Walt Disney, I'm I'm America's dad, that kind of, like, proto-Tom Hanks affability <laughs> shit. <laughs> Yeah, Christmas at Disneyland and you see everything that's at Disneyland. It's changed an awful lot since then yeah you know, they had the Hall of Presidents, they had like settlers and uh indigenous peoples and but like the Disneyland version of all that. It's like at least back then you could experience American history in the most banal way possible <laughs> through Disneyland. You're watching this like this park is fucking enormous, and Disney himself is just like so happy presiding over this empire of shit. You really gotta hand it to this guy, I mean. You know, he had an incredibly banal vision, and he succeeded beyond his wildest dreams. He bent the world into that unspeakably banal vision. He looked at America and he was like, "What if this was shittier? <laughs> what if What if it was the same thing but it was made of plastic and it tasted like cotton candy?
0: What if it was airbrushed and somehow made more synthetic and like marketized?" <laughs>
1: i love disney too because in like 1940 he makes fantasia which is his one stab at high culture and even that you know it's like he just did the classical music what he did to america at disneyland you know he took he took beautiful music and put like a hippopotamus and a tutu in it, <laughs> you know dancing to swan lake or whatever that was his stab at high culture and he regretted it to his dying day because he lost money on it This is the caliber of man we're dealing with. Anyway, that was all a preamble into a big news event that I think we're going to talk about (laughs) off the top of the show.
0: So we had uh, Will and I had multiple people uh, send us a story from The Verge. And, you know, it's our our listeners. We've been doing this for years and our listeners, I think, know us pretty well at this point. So uh, thanks to uh, the many people who passed this on. Uh, This is a story from The Verge. I'm going to read from uh, Disney is developing planned communities for fans who never want to leave its clutches. Disney has launched a new business for fans who can't bear to leave the pristine, family-friendly world the corporation has nurtured through its parks and media ventures. Story Living by Disney will operate as part of the company's theme parks division, developing a series of master-planned communities for residential living, designed by Disney's creative staff, and offering the same pampered tranquility found in its resorts. Picture an energetic community with the warmth and charm of a small town and the beauty of a resort, said Disney Parks Experiences and Products exec Helen Pack in a promotional video. Only one location has been announced so far, a community of 1,900 housing units named Cotino that will be built in the city of Rancho Mirage in California's Coachella Valley, a location where Walt Disney once lived.
1: Wait, I have a quick question before I continue. Can you have sex with Mary Poppins in this community? Or, like mini
0: Well my sense is my sense is this a, f- a pristine family-friendly place but perhaps we can read on and find out Concept art for Catino shows villas, condos and housing complexes clustered around a 24-acre Grand Oasis which Disney says will offer clear turquoise waters powered by the Crystal Lagoons technology deployed at its resorts That's good. I'm glad the Lagoons technology will be top notch.
1: Uh, That's like at the Playboy Mansion, how uh, Hefner had the grotto. This is Walt's equivalent of that.
0: (laughs) Amenities will include shopping, dining and entertainment, as well as beachfront hotel and clubhouse hosting Disney programming, yada, yada, yada. Um, So I think people get the idea. I'm not going to read on. You can read the full story in The Verge if you want, but the story comes with a kind of promotional trailer, and I, I you know, which I watched, and I, I did check to make sure that this is something that was, you know, actually posted, as it were, in public by Disney for people to see, and it is indeed posted by a, a YouTube account, a verified YouTube account called Disney Parks which has 1.52 million subscribers. God, imagine subscribing to the Disney Parks YouTube channel. I mean, that's almost as many subscribers as this podcast. Um, But I don't know. Perhaps we can link to this. Words cannot adequately describe how bizarre this promotional video is. It sounds like a company pitch from a boardroom meeting. You know, it sounds like uh, the type of pitch you'd give to potential investors. Uh, It's the type of language, you know, it's like the corporate equivalent of like the bullshit sort of stuff you might put in a cover letter or on a resume where you describe yourself as like an experienced professional with a diverse series of, you know, assets or, you know, whatever. So you get these various people, you know, these various like Disney apparatchiks or whatever telling you about the park community resort you know dystopian company town i'm not really sure how best to describe it as imagineers story is at the heart of everything we do and we love bringing authentic places to life
1: to immerse you in those stories our consumers trust that experiences that disney creates will be enriching adventurous and fun for all involved and they all know that it will have that special disney touch attention to detail and innovation
0: and while we're known most for our theme park experiences, we've built an incredible legacy of going beyond the parks, finding new ways to make magic for Disney fans in beautiful locations, both on land and at sea. I'm proud to announce our next Disney experience, Story Living by Disney. All new Disney branded master planned residential communities designed to be the perfect setting for Disney fans to write the next exciting chapter in their lives. Various people are talking and just to give you an example of what the tone of the video is like one guy says this exciting new venture will enhance extend and strengthen the Disney brand by allowing us to bring the magic of Disney to places you never expected so there's so many things I like about that sequence of words so first of all I like that it sounds like a threat. Okay, It's like, it's like this, it's going to enhance, extend, and strengthen the Disney brand and also project it into places that you've, you, you never, you never thought possible. Like, if, i mean if you, it sounds
1: like a certain country in the 1930s if you ask me i like, think we know which it's one like, it's
0: like if you didn't think you disney was ubiquitous enough in in our lives already you know guess what it can, it's it's going to extend itself uh still further but again
1: the what, thought that there is virgin terrain in the united <laughs> states even that hasn't been sullied by disney i mean yeah
0: they i mean it's like they bought star wars like what how, what, how much more rent seeking is there i guess maybe if you know membership in one of these communities comes with nfts or something uh that's how they could take it further but again what i love about this pitch is how you know like they're pitching ostensibly to fans like this is a promotional video this is to like you know if you're like a really big like disney head this is to get you excited about like the cool stuff disney's doing and yet you know disney describes itself quite explicitly in that pitch to that audience as a brand it describes this as an exciting new venture and this speaks to a phenomenon that I've become quite interested in recently, and that we've talked about a lot on the show, which is this kind of turn in corporate monopolism where you know corporate monopolies and entertainment monopolies specifically are now entirely self-aware in their public-facing presentation You know that they are monopolies. So uh, we discussed, I don't know, a few months back, another Disney product, and product is the right word, which was The Simpsons in Plus-Aversary, which was a Disney short that existed to celebrate Plus-Aversary which was, you know, a fake commemorative holiday Disney had created to celebrate the anniversary of the Simpsons being on Disney Plus. And in the short you know, you get to see all your, you know, all these Disney commodities, you know, fucking Goofy is in line with, you know, Homer. Homer is not on the guest list. Goofy is. Goofy gets, you know, Goofy gets Homer in. Buzz Lightyear and the Mandalorian are arm wrestling, etc.
1: My wife left me when I forgot to give her a plus anniversary gift. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. <laughs>
0: but then Lisa Simpson comes out and, uh, you know, sings this song where, among other things, she boasts about Disney's, like, rising share value. So in addition to being, like... A sort of kind of episode of The Simpsons. It's also a corporate curated bit of fan fiction, and then furthermore, a kind of sales pitch because you know capitalism is democratic, folks. Neoliberalism is democratic. You, the fan, can also own a piece of the thing you love, and and thus be you know an economic participant. You can be an owner too.
1: I think this Disney community isn't so much being an owner of it as being a part of it, like giving yourself to it entirely, the same way that you might give yourself to like God. You can now become part of something bigger and greater than yourself.
0: Well, I think that's true. And in some ways, that's kind of the, the pitch, as it were, of any, you know, community is that, you know, you contribute some part of yourself or your identity to a larger whole, and then you get something in return.
1: You get to you get to have sex with many.
0: <laughs> but my point is, I you know, I think it's striking that the pitch is also an explicitly, you know, capitalist one, right? Because in a market society, you know, what's the most hallowed kind of marker of membership in anything? Well, it's owning, you know, the title deeds to something it's a contract, it's, you know, being a good little neoliberal subject, being, you know, a shareholder, etc.
1: I'd like to know more about how the community works. Like, do you you get to vote in it? Is there a mayor of Disney Town? Uh, Do you have to work there? Like, are there employment? Like, do you help society perpetuate itself? Or does society just happen to you like it does at Disneyland?
0: (laughs) Okay, so that's such such a good question. Here's what I think about, you know, (laughs) municipal governance. Here's how I expect it works. Although, you know, we'll have to see. Who
1: picks up the garbage in <laughs> we'll, this Disney well, town? We'll have to
0: see how things go, you know, once they've actually opened one of these company towns. But here's how I suspect it works. I bet you that like the municipal governance is like very codified in like granular detail, but it's codified in like a twee Disney way. So there is like a mayor, but he's like a mascot or something. You know, like they probably will make up a whole bunch of like new characters.
1: Well, it's a guy in the goofy suit and, you know, at part of the official Lore is that Goofy worked at McKinsey, and this is what qualified him to work in municipal okay, government. Well,
0: that brings me to what I was going to say next, which was that I, I bet you, you know, like any town, uh, like any, you know, human settlement, there will be lots of problems. And I bet you there will be some kind of like, you know, electoral system where like, if you don't like, you know, Goofy's handling of things you know you can vote him out and put Mickey Mouse in or whatever but that won't change anything because the whole municipal government is just part of like the you know twee charm of the whole thing or like that's the point of it and then yeah behind the scenes there's like an unelected like junta of McKinsey consultants who are like you know who are probably like you know managing all the precarious like gig workers that they bring in to like make everything actually work who, who...
1: and they're preparing their presentation for congress to say that you know this is the proof of concept see how this can work Now, please give us uh, South Dakota and we can run that. And then, if that works, maybe we can work our way up to California.
0: <laughs> anyway we'll have to follow up on this story More in the future but just as a final Point on this I really do think Entertainment monopolies really have Entered a, a territory A space a terrain um, that they Hadn't previously entered I mean One of the responses that I uh, predicted To the piece I wrote about Disney And the zombification of culture a few months Ago uh, was that people would say oh You're just realizing that corporations Commodify you know entertainment and Culture you know companies like Disney have Been doing that for decades and you know while that's all Obviously true. I think there's a major qualitative difference between entertainment conglomerates merely being, you know, the conduits for something, uh, you know, for, for culture, for a TV show, a cinematic universe, whatever, and presenting themselves in a public facing way as the curators and managers and also owners of culture. Don't forget, and you know, we've talked about this ad nauseum on the show as well, that there's now an entire genre of blockbuster that is basically the intellectual property blockbuster. So things like Space Jam, and New Legacy, where in the world of the film, the company is actually, you know, a character and the Looney Tunes and Rick and Morty and Game of Thrones and all the rest of it, they are in the universe of the film, corporate properties as well. So I really think we've crossed a certain Rubicon here. Anyway, watching the Disney commercial, all I could think of was that amazing episode of The Simpsons with Hank Scorpio. What's it called? You Only Live Twice?
1: You Only Move Twice.
0: Right, right. You Only Move Twice, where, you know, they go to that planned community called Cypress Creek that's just a company town. I mean, Disney is literally setting out to build Cypress Creek.
1: Look at this place.
0: Somebody ought to build a town that works. Somebody did.
1: It's called Cypress Creek, a planned community designed for the workers of the Globex Corporation. Cypress Creek, where dreams come true. Your dreams may vary from those of Globex Corporation, its subsidiaries, and shareholders.
2: You got a real naked woman there, okay? A beautiful girl.
0: Thank you, Mr. Flynn.
2: Just shoot (laughs) her. There's a new, darker influence in Cincinnati. If you don't like Hustle magazine, don't read it. I don't. We're breaking taboos. How about a 50-year-old center How
1: about the Wizard of Oz?
2: Hustler? depicts santa claus in a lewd and shameful manner decent people are being corrupted ohio governor
0: jim rhodes was spotted buying the infamous Jackie o issue
2: god almighty will judge you it was your intention to hold reverend farwell out to be a hypocrite well that's what, what he is, is. You have a strong civil liberties case on your hands. Are you ashamed to have your husband locked up? Uh, I'd rather have a man that stands up for what he believes in.
1: Well, our movie on this episode is 1996's The People vs. Larry Flint, which is another superdelegate-selected episode, uh, just like In the Loop was. Uh, the two films tied in our superdelegate poll, and you know we would die for our patrons. So uh, we, are, we are doing both movies.
0: I suspect that, uh, like Al Gore, The People vs. Larry Flint actually won the popular vote but you know some of our more fanatical fans uh, rioted and they had to stop counting the votes so uh the hanging chads had it at a tie
1: well this film is directed by the acclaimed director of amadeus milo forman and it stars former varsity newspaper <laughs> guest editor woody harrelson and james carville that's right <laughs> uh hollywood's two biggest stars together at last two people i've uh,
0: met and like equally
1: and the present you've met james carville is that actually no true? i
0: haven't met james
1: carville uh, something to look forward to in future perhaps uh, and the presence of james carville indicates what era this movie was made in this uh, really is one of the flagship movies of the 90s culture war a whole different era of the culture war Larry Flint, as I'm sure most listeners will know, was the late publisher of Hustler magazine, the ruder, cruder little brother to Playboy, the first magazine to show between the legs, and a magazine that fought and even won many crucial First Amendment lawsuits. Most spectacularly, a victory over Jerry Falwell for uh, emotional distress that was argued before the Supreme Court. Uh, had you seen this movie before, Luke?
0: No, I hadn't, but I was pleased to see our, our old pal Woody in, uh, in top form.
1: The person who nominated this on the Patreon, I'm very pleased to say, uh, nominated it on the grounds that uh, they enjoyed hearing me talk about smot and they wanted to hear me talk about more smot. However, I uh, hate to disappoint that person Uh, when i say that i have very little familiarity with hustler magazine i don't uh i i don't even know if i've read an issue of it to be honest i mean i am as everyone knows an al goldstein and screw magazine partisan (laughs) uh and and as i think larry himself would admit he stole the format from screw magazine for hustler but what he did that Goldstein was never able to do was go national.
0: Well, and before we carry on, I mean, we would be remiss not to acknowledge that, you know, you're not being uh, tongue in cheek, you know, for for newer, newer listeners who may not have heard the story in the past. I mean, Will actually does take a very uh, earnest and, and genuine interest in what's generally called smut and in fact the late Al Goldstein uh, is somebody who Will visited on his deathbed and uh, you may in fact have been I mean it's one of my favorite stories of yours you know you were probably the last person besides the people that were taking care of him to talk to Al Goldstein I mean I think he died just a few days later and you know even though he'd been forgotten for you know 15 years or so or or longer you know and and was basically homeless at, at, at one point
1: he was literally homeless on the street I mean Al Goldstein with Screw magazine, he had a fortune of like 11 million, 15 million dollars and he pissed it all away to the point that he was literally homeless in like 2003, 2004, and no less than Pen Gillette. Picked him up off the street, paid for a Staten Island apartment for him. So I mean, gotta hand it to Penn Gillette, giving his money to Al Goldstein.
0: But so after Goldstein had spent such a long time in obscurity, and you know, you were able to go visit him. And as I understand it, you know, he wasn't really uh, in a place where he was able to to talk to you that much. But
1: I would say I I spoke at him a little mm-hmm. bit. I mean, it was it was remarkable to see him there. What I do remember about that day was uh, his caretaker, uh, a younger woman who was a friend of Penn Gillette's was there, and uh, I was talking to her, and she showed me this cell phone video that she had taken of him in his hospital bed a couple of weeks earlier, and, you know, the the video depicts this, like, very old, toothless man sitting in a wheelchair in, like, a hospital gown, and she says, uh, remind me, Al, what was it you said you wanted to do to me? And he goes, oh, well, first I would, and then, you know, it followed, uh, just as obscene as you think it would be. And I remember, I watched that video, and I thought, God, guys still got it. You know, (laughs) but
0: so after he'd spent more than a decade in in total obscurity and also financial ruin and you were one of the last people to uh, to talk to him. I believe he got an obituary, was it on the cover of the New York Times?
1: He was front page above the fold, which certainly speaks to the importance that Al Goldstein had for a brief moment in the 70s. I mean, Goldstein, Larry Flint, Hugh Hefner, you know, like him or not, these are the guys who were really fighting those battles, you know? So many of those First Amendment lawsuits, those uh, crucial First Amendment lawsuits of the 60s and 70s were fought by, you know, scoundrels. That is the thesis of this film. Actually, I do want to say, at least in regards to Al Goldstein, you know the popular the popular move for a lot of these guys, and and you see various characters in this movie say it is well, I don't approve of I don't approve of what they do, but you know you you have to take the good with the bad. If you if you disapprove of what they're doing, then who's to say that somebody isn't going to come along and ban uh, Henry Miller or uh, somebody important, somebody good and important like that that we can all agree on? And I just want to say, uh, I think Screw Magazine was the height of literature. I think its jokes were incredible. And regarding Larry Flint, I especially think his satiric assault against Jerry Falwell... Uh, was a masterpiece and needs no apologies. So I guess we can get a little bit into the plot of the film. It is a sort of Cole's Notes Wikipedia version of Larry Flint's life, a rather sanitized version of his life, a bit of a hagiography.
0: Well, you know, we should we should say uh, right off the top. I think before we get into the plot, that you know, if if there is a criticism to be made of this movie, it's that it, it presents the subject matter as a pretty cut and dry, uh, you know, civil rights, civil liberties case, freedom of speech case and, you know, in the act of doing so, I mean, it doesn't really adequately represent the kind of stuff that Larry Flint was putting in his magazine.
1: Really, the the closest it comes to doing that is showing that very famous Hustler magazine cover that's like a woman's legs coming out of a meat grinder. And I think the only reason it shows that is because it can't not show it. It was such an iconic image. It was such a rallying point for like Women Against Pornography and uh, Andrea and Gloria Steinem, everyone like that. used used that as like an example of the evils of pornography. So the movie can't avoid showing that image. But aside from that, it sort of just presents everything in Hustler magazine is like, tee hee hee, like, we're, we're really sticking it to the squares by showing Santa Claus with a big penis.
0: Right. And you know, the magazine uh, in real life had a lot of more misogynistic stuff. It, there were allegations of, uh, you know, racism against it as well. Uh, it had a lot of stuff that was kind of, you know. It had a lot of, uh, you know, violent stuff.
1: A lot of uh, quasi-ambivalently ironic sexual assault material.
0: Right. So I think uh, excluding all of that in the interest of making, you know, what is what is at the end of the day a, a perfectly entertaining and well-executed kind of, you know, middlebrow movie that is trying to intervene on one side of what was then the culture war. I think those omissions actually kind of weaken the case the movie is trying to make. Because I think when you leave those things out, you're not really fully exploring the implications of the sort of hardcore civil libertarian position that someone like Larry Flint uh, represented and which the film is also trying to endorse as well. Now, I should mention that uh, Milosh Foreman offered a defense of this. He said, for one thing, that if, he, uh, if he'd if he included uh, extreme pornographic content, he wouldn't have been able to make the film at all. He claimed that he made the movie, quote, out of admiration for the beauty and wisdom of the American Constitution, which allows this kind to rise to its best when provoked by the worst... So, you know, a pretty straightforward freedom of speech defense. And if you're a listener to this show, it's probable that in, you know, the, the battle between Larry Flint and Jerry Falwell, you're liable to come down on the side of the former. Having said that, I think that the film could have been more effective in some ways by being a, a whole lot uglier and by kind of showing the darker implications of the uh, position it's defending. I mean, Flint himself also is largely, I think, a likable character in the movie, partly just because, you know, Woody Harrelson is a, tends to be a pretty likable guy. I mean, there's one, there's one scene where it's kind of blown past pretty quickly, where he pushes Althea, his girlfriend, who's played by Courtney Love, and that's kind of the only allusion uh, the film makes to that side of Larry Flint, which it, it largely, I think, leaves out of the picture.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with your criticisms, and I don't really buy Milos Forman's defense on the grounds that, well, you know, I uh, obviously I couldn't show extreme pornography because I wouldn't be able to make the movie, because the movie also doesn't show any really explicit at like below the belt nudity either but it gets the point across there are ways to get across the point of the content of the magazine without literally showing it but instead what we hear about a lot are teehee we did a pictorial of the wizard of oz where it's like dorothy having sex with the tin man etc etc Most of the transgressive content that we hear of, I think you would have to be like a real Jerry Falwell level sourpuss to be really offended by
0: it. Right, like a lot of it is just like punching up and it's just like fighting back against Reagan era sort of, you know, social prudishness or whatever. But there's definitely more to this story than that.
1: Anyway, this movie more or less follows Larry Flint's life from his birth to his landmark Supreme Court victory. We see a little bit of him as a child in Appalachia selling bootleg hooch in his early adulthood. He runs a strip club, whereas publicity material, he has a little photocopied rag with some nudie pictures in it. He's able to turn that into a national magazine, one that targets the audience uh, that is too lowbrow for the uh, Norman Mailer columns (laughs) in Playboy magazine.
0: Incidentally, I really like the scene where, uh, you know, you find out that, yeah, his innovation was realizing that, like, a lot of people who are buying Playboy, you know, they don't actually want to read articles about, you know, how to make the perfect cock cocktail you know how to mix the perfect martini or how to how to hook up your quadraphonic stereo you know he sits there rattling off articles and asking his colleagues you know if if any of them have, have read them and you know of course not right they're all just they're all just looking at the pics
2: you're
0: the photographer right yeah what do you got uh, is this mr flint yeah it's mr flint listen i was watching that damn island for four months and then one day man Cabana door opens and out comes Jackie O with nothing on. I mean, not a single stitch.
2: You sure it's Jackie O?
0: Yeah, sure.
2: And and what do you see?
0: You see absolutely everything. Trust me. And she's a good one. This ain't no Mamie Eisenhower or Lady Bird.
1: almost from the word go the magazine is the subject of controversy and lawsuits as i mentioned earlier it becomes the first magazine to show explicit gynecological nudity we see flint fighting a variety of lawsuits typically being convicted by a lower court before the conviction is overturned in a higher court by the way in in an early scene larry flint himself plays a judge in flint's first criminal trial that's the scene where the prosecuting attorney is played by james
0: actually like that James Carville is like you know he's on the conservative side of this film because I think one of the things that's been forgotten about the Clinton era is how you know socially conservative it actually was in in many ways like everyone remembers when Bill Clinton's you know gave the State of the Union address where he said you know the era of big government is over right and everyone remembers like you know that is the ultimate capitulation to Reaganism and of course in important respects that's true but nobody reads the rest of the speech no one remembers the rest of the speech where he's also appealing to the the, you know, corporate overlords at Disney and other entertainment companies to make wholesome content that will, like, bequeath good values to children. He's talking about the need for V chips in, like, TV sets so that children don't see, you know, uh, content that's not appropriate for them and stuff like that. The stifling social conservatism of the Reagan era absolutely spilled over uh, into the triangulations of the Clinton era as well. And it wasn't just that Clintonism embraced, you know, the economic or kind of anti New Deal side of Reaganism, it, it embraced uh, other parts of it as well.
1: That's funny, and I'm trying to reconcile that with the general spirit that this movie and most other Culture War artifacts of the era emanate that they give off a liberal affect. In fact, they they even give give off a bit of a like big Democratic Party affect. I'm wondering if it's because Clinton himself was perceived as such a kind of um, you know a tawdry figure <laughs> in some circles. <laughs> well, he was
0: sold as the first president from the rock and roll generation, right? I think a certain amount of that is generational. I mean, you know, people were divided politically in the in the '90s, including people within the liberal coalition. And I think, you know, that was a time when, you know, certain people who were liberals and had grown up in the 1960s, you know, still associated themselves and and their liberalism with, you know, the transgressing of social barriers and with, you know, new sexual liberation and, and the sexual revolution and things like that. The 90s, I think, are, are a land of contrasts. I think that's how he resolved this question.
1: (laughs) Various incidents from Flint's life appear in episodic fashion. There is his brief conversion to Christianity, having been persuaded by no less than Ruth Carter Stapleton, the, uh, the sister of President Jimmy Carter. According to the film, I'm not I'm not quite sure how much this corresponds to the reality, but according to the film, Flint gave up religion shortly after he was shot by a would-be assassin and paralyzed from the waist down. There's another bizarre cameo in the movie, Norm MacDonald shows up in a completely serious role as a journalist.
0: Yeah, this was a little weird. I kept waiting for him to make a joke and then it, it didn't didn't happen.
1: But he's still got the norm <laughs> affect. I mean, he's he, he's not a good actor. I mean it's very strange to see. Him in the movie. He's in Man on the Moon as well, by the way. Melish Foreman's next movie. I'm not not quite sure what it was about him that Foreman invested so heavily in. But with him, Flint leaks videos of John Delorean being entrapped for cocaine trafficking. This leads to, uh, in some ways, the emotional zenith of the movie as he's going from one trial after another, turning the trials into performance art. At this at this point, Flint has decided that there is no place in America for an honest man like him. So he'll like wear diapers and wear the American flag in court. But finally, in the last act of the film, he realizes that it's time to be serious, because his attorney, played by Edward Norton, has a chance to take the Larry Flint lawsuit to the Supreme Court. And for those who are unaware, the genesis of this lawsuit was that Hustler magazine printed a parody of the then-popular Jim Beam liquor ads, where they were very sexually suggestive. It'd be somebody saying, my first time, but it was, you know, their first time with Jim Beam liquor. And in their parody ad, it was Jerry Falwell talking about having sex with his mother for the first time in an outhouse. Which, by the way, if you ask me, I'm in favor of that. I think that's exactly the kind of satire that Jerry Falwell deserves. And I'm sorry that the Supreme Court decision had to qualify that by saying that it was a poor cousin to Jonathan Swift. But I think this last act of the movie is probably the most interesting. You know, you see the Edward Norton attorney character arguing the case in front of the Supreme Court, I think based on the transcripts from the actual case. And it's very interesting to hear the parry between him and the Supreme Court and to hear his legal reasoning for it, which ended up being a unanimous 8-0 decision, by the way, in Flint's favor.
2: A political cartoon that's over 200 years old. Um, It depicts George Washington riding on a donkey, being led by a man, and the caption caption suggests that this man is leading an ass to Washington. I can handle that. I
0: I think George can handle that. But that's a far cry from committing incest with your mother in an outhouse. I mean, there's no line between the two?
2: Uh, No. Justice Scalia, I would say there is no line between the two because really what you're talking about is a matter of taste and not law. Uh, as, as you yourself said, I believe, in Pope versus Illinois, uh, it's useless to argue about taste and even more useless to litigate it. And that is the case here. Uh, the jury has already determined for us that this is, is a matter of taste and not a matter of law because th- they've said that there is no libelous speech, that nobody could reasonably believe that Hustler was actually suggesting that Jerry Falwell had sex with his mother. So why did Hustler? have him and his mother together. Hustler puts him and his mother together in, in a example of literary uh, travesty, if you will. And what public purpose does this serve? Well, it serves the same public purpose as having Gary Trudeau say that Reagan has no brain or that George Bush is a wimp. It lets us look at public figures a little bit differently. We, we have a long tradition in this country of satiric commentary. Now, if, if Jerry Falwell can sue... Uh, when there has been no libelous speech purely on the grounds of emotional distress, then so can other public figures. And imagine, if you will, suits against people like Gary Trudeau and Johnny Carson for what he says on the Tonight Show tonight.
0: Now I think uh, Courtney Love is very good in the movie too. as Flint's girlfriend and later wife, you know the romance is kind of one of the subplots to the movie and there's a lot of dark stuff when they both spiral together and and there's a really uh, upsetting scene where you know he eventually finds her drowned in a bathtub. Most of the kind of final act of the movie though is uh, is pretty funny because it's just the Flint character trolling the American legal system, you know, calling Jerry Falwell, Jerry Fartwell, things like that. And in the end, you know, the thing kind of comes across, as we were saying, as a pretty kind of straightforward civil libertarian case and freedom of speech case.
1: I do basically enjoy this movie. It's a well-made movie. It's very entertaining throughout. And I mean, it's great to have all these facts about Larry Flint in one place, so you don't have to read the whole Wikipedia page. But on some level, I don't really respect the movie. And I keep I keep returning to what you were saying earlier about how it it's just a little bit too much of an hagiography. And I mean, you can see it in that last act where Larry Flint discovers Althea in the bathtub. She's drowned there. She's been suffering from AIDS for a long time. By the way, not that it matters, except that it does sort of matter. That's not, you know, he didn't actually in real life find her drowned in the bathtub. Like, or he, or he personally didn't. But, I mean, the movie has it so that he finds her in the bathtub, so that it makes the next scene where he sees Jerry Falwell on TV, you know, saying some very reprehensible and bigoted things about the AIDS crisis being a plague by God against sinners, you know. So it gives that scene more dramatic heft, so that it makes the last couple scenes of the movie have more dramatic heft. The Supreme Court battle isn't just about ideas at that point, you know, this time it's personal. Now it's Larry Flynn's own personal vendetta against Jerry Falwell for having said such horrible things about the AIDS epidemic, and by association, his wife the case itself is so strong that i don't know i i don't i don't really appreciate having the deck stacked that heavily on on larry flint's side throughout the whole movie foreman's direction i think is a little bit too heavy-handed throughout like in every court scene whenever larry flint is doing something outrageous his camera is always cutting to some conservative fuddy-duddy like charles keating or whoever like huffing and puffing or and then it's cutting to courtney love cheering him on and laughing. You know, there's never there's never a second in this movie where you are not 100% certain what to think about what you are seeing. And and I think ultimately that's why I don't particularly respect this movie even though I enjoyed it from beginning to end.
0: Now, there's an episode in Larry Flint's career that uh, you know, is is, is pretty much entirely left out of the movie. I and mean, there's one scene where he's on stage and he's giving a speech and and it could be an allusion to this, but I don't think is so explicitly. In 1983, uh, Larry Flint actually launched a presidential campaign. And because we'd be remiss to not mention this, I just want to read a little bit about the campaign... This is from an article by Owen Gleiberman. The Larry Flint presidential campaign launched in 1983 was a tawdry piece of low-life media guerrilla performance art that made the 1968 mock candidate Pat Paulson look like Bernie Sanders. It was not a campaign, not really. It was a rolling publicity stunt. and anything goes, kamikaze, assault on the very idea of government. In Flint's words, the campaign would be an act of satire and rebellion against Reagan's America. The joke of it is that Flint, a shrewd megalomaniac, literally thought he could win. It was a mud-slinging circus, an all-out assault on decorum and politics, though with a serious issue at its heart—Flynn's absolutist defense of the First Amendment. So that was from a review of uh, an actual documentary about Larry Flint's presidential campaign, which uh, maybe we should watch sometime. I'm interested in stuff like that. I'm also relatedly interested in, I believe there's a documentary about Howard Stern's run for governor of New York, where he actually won the nomination uh, of the Libertarian Party. And I've heard there's uh, some great scenes of like New York Libertarian Party guys like weeping because they're so upset that, you know, their party's been taken (laughs) over. You know, it's like all these guys that just wanted to sit around and like pedantically talk about the constitution and the and the sovereign citizens movement and how there should be like personal nuclear weapons ownership or, or whatever, you know, how, how seatbelt laws were Stalinism or whatever. Apparently they were very upset by Howard Stern. So that could be fun.
1: I would love to watch that. I mean, it's insanity that we haven't talked about Howard Stern at any length on this podcast yet. Howard Stern's kind of an interesting culture war figure for similar reasons to Larry Flint, because they're both guys who Who, I guess, commendably fought these free speech battles, but who didn't really have anything to say, you know? You look at those Golden Age Howard Stern segments, and, okay, with with the caveat that obviously Howard Stern has been saying things every day on the radio for, like, eight hours a day for 40 (laughs) years. But nevertheless, despite all that, I don't see a particularly compelling worldview out of him. Like, back in the day, he was fighting these battles so that he could have, like— Okay, we have a KKK Grand Wizard here, and we've got somebody from the NAACP, and uh, we have a little person, and we've got them all in the same pan. Oh, and here's a stripper too. And uh, let's uh, let's let's see what happens. That was his politics, and now forty years later, he's on SiriusXM interviewing Hillary Clinton.
0: Right. Well, this is where this is where I disagree with you because I thought that the segment that he and Hillary Clinton did about how you know it was sexist for Bernie Sanders to campaign for free tuition or whatever, I thought that was. Was very transgressive and radical.
1: Oh, speaking of which, you know who endorsed Hillary Clinton in the uh, primary in twenty fifteen? Uh, no less than Mister Larry Flint. I found that out on Wikipedia today.
0: That's right. Uh, Larry Flint hated Donald Trump, and you know was very much a lib at the end of his life. Uh, he also, uh, since we were, we talked about his uh, presidential campaign, uh, he also ran for California governor in 2003. Uh, the governor of California, Gray Davis, was recalled, and Flint was among uh, 135 candidates running to replace him, ran on the slogan, a smut peddler who cares, and uh, got just over 15,000 votes.
1: I think Gary Coleman was also a candidate in that election. Yeah, it was Gray Davis, Arnold, <laughs> and then countless novelty candidates, one of whom was Larry right, Flint. Right,
0: unlike... Unlike novelty candidate Arnold, unlike, unlike Arnold Schwarzenegger.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I was there next to the ballot box and the choice was Arnold and Larry, I you know I, I think we know we know who I would vote for. Actually, we, we don't. It's Larry. I would vote for Larry over Arnold. Uh, but but yes, he did become quite a lib towards the end of his life. Uh, in October 2017, I found out he offered 10 million dollars for anyone with evidence that would lead to the impeachment of Donald <laughs> Trump. <So. laughs>
0: Yeah, I get the sense Larry Flint was one of those guys who like was subscribed to like 15 different podcasts that did like three emergency pods a day at every stage of the like Mueller report.
1: More likely, he just read the New York Times. I mean, that's probably what he did. Can you imagine the guy who started Hustler magazine, this magazine that was just the basest pornography to get people who didn't want to read all those articles in Playboy? Can you imagine him looking ahead 50 years to like this old man who's so high in his own supply? He's writing these editments. Editorials in Hustler magazine about impeaching Donald Trump.
0: Well, I mean, there's an interesting story in all that, in how the, the poles of the culture war in some ways have, have shifted. Because, I mean, Donald Trump, I mean, was literally a troll. And the, and the whole kind of, I mean, the modern right-wing affect has very much become about transgressing of, of barriers and things like that. And, of course, it's still married in many ways to the exact same kind of Reaganite politics, both in terms of, you know, social and fiscal conservatism. And, and of course, has the support of many of the same constituencies. I mean, white evangelical Christians were among, you know, Donald Trump's, I mean, they were his most reliable constituency, much as liberals could never figure it out. They were like, oh, but he's had so many marriages. And you know, what about like Melania's modeling? You know, there was a kind of liberal who can only understand politics in terms of, you know, hypocrisy, that really <laughs> thought that that kind of stuff was going to be kryptonite against Donald Trump. And of course, it didn't matter at all, because so much of the, the modern right wing affect is about transgression and offending people and also like creating the space in which you're allowed to offend people, with impunity, punched down with impunity, etc., and in some ways, you know, the greatest innovation of Trumpism is that it was able to kind of democratize that for a lot of people. You know, it, it very quickly shed any pretense of, you know, actually breaking from, you know, the the bipartisan consensus that like a few people had naively thought, uh, you know, they kind of naively bought, you know, bought into that when Trump kind of pitched it to them in 2016. But the one, you know, pretty nihilistic thing it, it still did offer people was that it said, you know, yeah, hey, everything is shit. But if nothing else, you can trigger the libs. We're going to give you permission to offend and upset. At all of the people you hate And so often, you know, liberalism Which has, you know, increasingly over the past 30 years Become, you know, the ruling philosophy The ruling ideology among affluent, well-heeled coastal professionals It was uh, all too often happy to feed Donald Trump's narcissistic supply in, re- in relation to all that And, you know, happy to react in kind of the the, the moralistic way That Trump and his supporters wanted when uh, provoked
1: I am Larry Flint. I hereby announce my candidacy for the presidency of these United States of America. One of your colleagues said on the floor
2: that no decent member of Congress would accept Hustler. That's exactly why I
1: sent it to you in the first place. You're all a bunch of low-life, indecent, puke-infested maggots that should be hounded from office for being political, inept quacks, spelled Q-U-A-C-K-S. Fuck you, motherfuckers.